I, um, I need to begin with uh, a little bit of a package warning label. The contents of this message may not be entirely agreeable to everyone. Um, I don't make any apology for approaching our topic and our passage this morning from a dispensational theological perspective, since that's the de facto position of our seminary. But I do recognize that not even all dispensational theologians uh, agree on all the details of, of this topic. So hopefully we'll, we'll agree enough to make the next few minutes together both informative and uh, encouraging. You are well-educated seminary students, so you know that the phrase, the new covenant, comes from the Old Testament book of, Jer- I mean, besides the fact we've been in there for eight months, you ought to be able to get that part, and chapter 31, okay? Jeremiah 31 is, of course, the only Old Testament passage that actually uses that phrase, the new covenant, though it does show up several times in uh, the New Testament. But of course, Jeremiah 31 is not the only place in the Old Testament that talks about the new covenant because the new covenant, miss my first cue, that's my title, because the new covenant also goes by a few other names. Now, if you've already taken my New Testament theology class, those references should look very familiar to you. In fact, you should have already read all 140 verses that are listed there in succession. At least you better have. So I apologize for any necessary duplication in this message from New Testament lectures, that's New Testament theology lectures that some of you have already uh, had to endure. But a certain amount of foundation is necessary for what we're going to talk about today. Now, some of you might look at that list and think, wait, I thought you said New Testament theology. That looks real Old Testament to me. Um, Looks like you're poaching on Dr. Casillas' territory here. So I'm going to give you the the explanation that I give to my New Testament theology students. When I graduated from seminary, I was functionally illiterate about the New Covenant. And I'm sure that was largely my fault, but I just don't remember any course that delved in detail into that topic. And when I came on faculty 20 years ago, my first class assignment was to teach New Testament theology. And I quickly realized that to teach New Testament theology meaningfully, you first have to understand what the New Testament is and why it's called the New Testament. Because a common operational assumption among many Christians, it was my assumption for many years, is that Testament is basically a synonym for kind of the word book. So the Old Testament is the historically old part of this book, and the New Testament is a historically newer part of this book called the Bible. But it is, in fact, unfortunate that the word testament was ever applied to the two parts into which the Bible is divided, especially as there is a much more suitable English word which might be used, and a perfectly familiar word at that, the word covenant. Testament, of course, derives from testamentum used in the Latin Bible to differentiate the Vetus Testamentum from the Novum Testamentum, following the earlier Greek Bibles, which divided between the Palaia Diatheke and the Kine Diatheke. Diatheke, of course, is used in the Greek New Testament about 33 times and in the Old Testament about 340 times to translate the Hebrew term bereath, covenant. So, in other words, 
The Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. That's what the titles mean that have been historically, providentially given to the two parts of our Bibles. The revelation of God under the Old Covenant, the revelation of God under the New Covenant. And to go back to F.F. Bruce, if we think of the Bible as comprising these two collections, we shall be well on our way to understanding what the Bible is and what it contains. The books of the Old Covenant tell how God made the necessary preparation for the sending of His Son to inaugurate the New Covenant. The books of the New Covenant tell how the Son of God came to do this and set forth the implications of the New Covenant. Both collections alike speak of Christ. It is He who gives unity to each and to both together. The former collection looks forward with hope to His appearance. The latter tells how that hope was fulfilled. Now, I'm going to take issue with that word fulfilled in just a moment. But his basic conception, I think, of the historic providential division of our Bibles into Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant is, is I think, fundamentally correct. At the same time, as Mark Saucy observes, it is one of the stunning ironies of academic biblical theology that the entity for which the New Testament corpus is named, the New Covenant, receives so little attention in understanding the New Testament's theology. And he's exactly right. And if you want proof of that, just look in the index of almost any New Testament theology that you pick up and you will find little to sometimes zero discussion in a New Testament theology of the New Covenant. And yet that's what this whole corpus is named after. And I think there are several reasons for that lack of attention, but one of them <clears throat> that I'll just mention in passing, really, is the seemingly ubiquitous misconception that Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is the new covenant. It's not. It's the preamble to a much bigger covenantal complex of components and promises. It's just the preamble to that. So there's a whole lot more to the New Covenant than just Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And I think that's really important for understanding what we're talking about today. <clears throat> and that's why all of these passages are the necessary gateway to understanding what the New Covenant is. And if you haven't worked systematically through those passages, your understanding of the New Covenant is bound to be deficient. And to whatever degree your understanding of the New Covenant is deficient, your understanding of the biblical theological breadth and depth of the New Testament is deficient. Now, if the New Covenant <clears throat> is a reference to Jeremiah 31, then what exactly is the Old Covenant? Because you've got a lot of covenants in the Old Testament, right? You've got the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the, uh, the Noahic Covenant, and so forth. And Hebrews 8 is uh, the passage that most succinctly explains that the Old Covenant is specifically the Mosaic Covenant. This is the main point of the things we are saying. He writes, we have such a high priest who is, and I'm jumping from verse 1 to verse 6, who is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with not it, but them... He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, clearly a reference to the Mosaic covenant, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, not on tables of stone, but on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. He is, of course, quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And Hebrews is the fullest New Testament explanation of the failure, the incompleteness, and therefore the obsoleteness of the Mosaic Covenant. Not because it was flawed, but because humans are, because the people are. And because of those features of that Old Covenant, that Mosaic Covenant, it records the official inauguration of the New Covenant. But inauguration is a really, really important word for us. And let me try to illustrate that this way. Remember in Luke 4 when Jesus stood up in the Nazareth synagogue and read from Isaiah 61. Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then, Luke says, Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and all the eyes of everybody in that synagogue are fixed on him. And then he says, today, that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is significant about where Jesus stopped reading is that he stops in the middle of the sentence. He left out the rest of the sentence, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's not the next verse. That's not a new sentence. It's part of the same sentence in the middle of which he stopped in his reading before he announced the passage's fulfillment. So he purposefully stopped reading before Isaiah's reference in the very next breath of the same sentence to the day of vengeance of our God. Why did he do that? Because he had not come to fulfill that part yet. So in handling and interpreting Old Testament prophecy that way, Jesus is is basically demonstrating and I think authorizing what is often referred to as a telescopic interpretation of prophetic scripture. And that is the idea that statements may be back-to-back in terms of prophetic announcement, and yet centuries apart in terms of prophetic fulfillment. And that's why the word inauguration is so important. The inauguration of a president is not the fulfillment of his whole presidency. And the inauguration of a prophecy, like the New Covenant, is not the fulfillment of the entire prophecy. It's significant where Jesus stops reading before announcing the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, and it is equally significant to note where the writer of Hebrews stops quoting Jeremiah 31. Because 34 doesn't end the New Covenant passage, as we will see. So turn to Jeremiah 30 if you would. And I need to clarify here that the chronology of Jeremiah is a little bit tricky. The textual order of the prophecies that you find in Jeremiah is not necessarily chronological, but topical. But 
Jeremiah 30 to 33 is sometimes called the book of consolation or the book of hope or the book of comfort. And in other words, there's broad awareness that that, that unit is a package, 30 to 33. If you look at, if you, actually, if you look back at Jeremiah 28, 1, just before kind of getting a little bit of a running start, you've got a time reference in 28, 1, the year is 594. You've got another time reference in the end of chapter 28, the same year, 594. Then the next chapter, 29, 1, you've got a time reference, which happens to be sometime from 597 on. The time reference is not important for us. But when you get to chapter 30 and verse 1, you don't have a time reference, but you do begin to see a prophetic time reference, not a chronological time reference, but a prophetic time reference. And it keeps being reiterated. It takes slightly different forms, but it, it keeps being reiterated through this whole section of chapter 30 and 31. When you turn to Jeremiah 32, you got another historical time reference. The year is 587. And we also know from verse 2 of Jeremiah 32 that... That is the time that Jeremiah is imprisoned. So that becomes significant when you look at Jeremiah 33 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still shut up in prison. And then again, you've got a series of prophetic time references. Behold, the days are coming in those days, in those days. So even if 30 and 31 are chronologically separated from 32 and 33... The whole section is a unit focused on a prophetic reference to and description of a covenantal complex of events identified here alone in the Old Testament as the New Covenant. So what exactly then is the New Covenant? And when you put together all the contents of all those covenantal passages, and those aren't all of them, those are the major ones, those passages that I showed you earlier, you discover that the new covenant is made explicitly with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and it comprises a whole constellation of at least two dozen specific covenantal promises aimed at the universal glorification of God and the international sanctification of God's name. And those at least two dozen covenantal promises align under two major categories. There's two major kinds of promises in that new covenant. The first of those could be called soteriological promises. The soteriological promises in the new covenant attract all the theological attention and all of the emphasis. They're the ones that are primarily focused on in a passage like 31, 31 to 34. One reason for all that attention is that it is almost exclusively the soteriological components of the New Covenant that are actually cited and discussed in the New Testament, which is where we tend to spend most of our time. And one reason, or excuse me, the, the, the New Testament focuses on, talks about things like these soteriological promises, God putting His law and His Spirit in His people's hearts, he transforms us internally. He grants forgiveness and deliverance from sin. He establishes a permanent spiritual bond with His people. And all of those new covenant provisions find very clear either citation or parallel language in the New Testament. But what that means is that only about 20% of those two dozen new covenant promises are ever talked about in the New Testament. 
What about, all the, what about the other 80% of the promises? Only 20% of the New Covenant's components have any citation in the New Testament indicating that they are in some way applicable to New Testament believers. And the presence of those cited in the New Testament underscores the conspicuous absence of any reference to all the other promises that are part of the same New Covenant, let alone any reference in the New Testament that those other 80% of promises are somehow fulfilled. Now, let me entertain an objection. <clears throat> if the covenant was made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, like you emphasized, then how can it have anything to do with us as Gentiles? And my answer to that is basically twofold. Number one, because it's God's covenant and He can extend the benefits to anybody He wants. Though He still has to fulfill those promises to those to whom He originally made them the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, but he can do that for anybody that he wants. But secondly, also because God keeps talking in the New Testament as though the soteriological promises of the New Covenant have, in fact, been extended to everyone who believes. So Jesus announces at the Last Supper that the cup represented the New Covenant in my blood. Paul affirms to the Corinthians, of all people, the Corinthian church in Greece, that God made him and his fellow workers ministers of the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews identifies Christ as the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. And we know that that's the new covenant because he quotes Jeremiah 31 to corroborate that. In other words, all these soteriological promises in the New Testament or in the new covenant are quoted and paralleled as experienced by New Testament, new covenant believers. The other major category of New Covenant promises is what I refer to as Israel-specific promises, promises that can be meaningfully fulfilled only to Israel. And that's about 80% of the New Covenant promises, 80% of the, of the components of the New Covenant. And it's encapsulated in this statement I've pulled from Jeremiah 32 and a statement from 33, just as I have brought all this calamity on this people so will I bring on them all the good that I promised to them. David will never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. It's, it's very clearly focused on Israel as Israel. So the new covenant is in fact rooted in the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic covenants because it is the mechanism for facilitating and fulfilling all of those other covenants. And that's why the majority of the New Covenant promises are Israel-specific. They are so deeply rooted in the national um, historical identity of Israel that they can be meaningly fulfilled only to those connected to that national historical identity and experience. So, for example, and this is just a bare sampling of that 80% from the New Covenant, the eternal existence of Israel as God's nation asserted with an oath, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, not, not, not just replaced with a new Jerusalem, rebuilt okay, and prosperous and eternally secure. There will be a universal regathering of Israel from all the nations, permanent restoration to the land given to their fathers, perpetual divine favor on Israel sworn with an oath. Israel and Judah will be reunited into one nation. Israel's international rejection and abuse will be forever reversed. None of these new covenant provisions, and again, that's just a sampling of the 80%, 
find any citation or parallel language in the New Testament, let alone are they ever described as fulfilled. Now, let me entertain another objection. But isn't the New Covenant a package? Doesn't it all have to be fulfilled at once? No. Why? Isaiah 61 is not all fulfilled at once. Jesus stops quoting the passage right in the middle of the sentence. Or isn't the New Covenant fulfilled in the coming of Christ? Absolutely. Which coming? Isaiah 61 isn't all fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. At least one of those phrases is fulfilled at the second coming. Same with the New Covenant. So with all of those horses kind of corralled, hopefully, in our thinking, we're ready to turn, or I should say return, to the original topic. You thought I forgot what this was about, right? Um, I almost did. No. Why is the New Covenant such good news? Well, these are certainly, what I'm offering here is certainly not exhaustive. They are suggestive. They're really designed to invite your own further exploration into these kinds of passages. I do have seven, though, so it's perfect. Some of these will be very tightly tied to a specific passage. Some are rooted in a broader biblical theological sweep of the whole range of revelation. But the first one that I'll suggest is that it's God's mechanism for fulfilling all those other covenants, as I already suggested. When you work through all the Old Testament New Covenant passages, you keep bumping into key components of the Abrahamic covenant. You keep finding land promises in the New Covenant. You keep finding references, not keep finding, but you do find references here and there to universal blessing. You keep finding references to God internalizing His law, referencing to the Mosaic Covenant, spiritual transformation, flawless and eternal leadership, the Davidic Covenant. So the New Covenant becomes God's gracious means for, vehicle for, overcoming the failures of all the other covenants, or to be more precise, overcoming the weak link in all the other covenants, which is sinful humanity. Secondly, because it is a capacitating covenant, 1 Peter 2, it enables what it requires. The Mosaic covenant never did The reversal from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is, I think, unmistakable in a passage like 1 Peter 2.9. you got the Old Covenant, a conditional covenant. If you will obey, then you will be my special treasure, kingdom of priests, holy nation, to display me before the nations. It's as if Peter takes that Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, and turns it on, it turns it on its head. It's not if you will obey, then you will be these things, but you are. You are these things. You are a chosen race, a people for his own possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. You see the complete reversal from the Mosaic to the, to the New Covenant. And that is why the writer of Hebrews can assert that the New Covenant is a better covenant established on better promises, which is the third reason the New Covenant is such good news. What promises? <clears throat> well, all of them. All the soteriological promises, the internal promises, as well as the non-soteriological, the material, the Israel-specific promises, 
because they are all gracious, certain, unilateral, unconditional, and eternal, unlike the Old Covenant. Number four, because it is an eternal covenant established not by the blood of sheep that can never take away sins, but by the eternally efficacious blood of the shepherd. The writer of Hebrews talks about the blood of the eternal covenant, the blood of Christ that is the foundation, the grounding, the rooting of that new eternal covenant. Look at those other passages. That's just another name for the new covenant all through the Old Testament. Number five, because it is the covenant of good news of which we are called to be ministers, 2 Corinthians 3. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, like the Mosaic covenant, but of the Spirit, which is an inherent aspect of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36. God says, in connection with the new covenant, I'm going to put my Spirit in you. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory than that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant? The New Testament is a fuller revelation and exploration specifically of the soteriological promises of the New Covenant for which the sacrifice of Christ is the necessary ground. But the New Testament also drops hints all along the way that those soteriological promises will be experienced by what Paul calls all Israel, do with that what you will, and that all the rest of the Israel-specific promises await their fulfillment as well. I say the New Testament drops hints of that, of the, of the other 80% all along the way here and there. That's another sermon to explore those, but they're there. Number six. The new covenant is such good news because it guarantees God's gracious faithfulness to his failing people, Israel. Sinful Israel's only hope for realizing all the promises of all the covenants that they have been given by God is if God's new covenant words are as reliable and as trustworthy as God himself. And he does in them and for them what they cannot do for themselves. That's the whole essence of the new covenant. And linked to that is number seven, because it guarantees God's gracious faithfulness to his failing people, the church. The sinful church's only hope that God will keep all his saving, securing promises to us through the gospel is linked to God's saving, securing promises to Israel. Because if he can, if God can, in spite of his promises, set Israel aside because of their sin and their failure and their unfaithfulness, or or trade them out for a different Israel, a new Israel, then what ground do we have for any certainty that God will not, in spite of his promises to us, set us aside because of our sin and failure and unfaithfulness, or trade us out for a different church, a new church? Our security and Israel's security are inextricably linked together to the trustworthiness of God's words, all of them, specifically here in the New Covenant. And it is precisely because He will unfailingly keep His promises to Israel that we can be confident that He will unfailingly keep His promises to us and vice versa. So the glory of the New Testament 
is the announcement of the inauguration of the new covenant by Christ, the mediator of that better covenant, established on better promises. The glory of the new covenant is that it is the consummate covenantal expression of God's grace to sinful humanity. In Romans 10.1, Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Later in the next chapter, he announces with confidence that that prayer will unfailingly be answered. And so all Israel shall be saved. God is going to answer that prayer. And if God will fulfill all the soteriological promises of the new covenant to Israel as Israel, all the soteriological promises, if He is going to save Israel in accordance with the soteriological promises of the new covenant, then why would He not fulfill all the non-soteriological promises to Israel as Israel? Why one, not the other? One of the points that He makes repeatedly in the new covenant, God, is that He is dead set on demonstrating to Israel and to us and to all the nations that He is the God who always keeps all of His words. And that is good news. That is the best news. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that You are the God who keeps His words. We thank You for Your jealousy, for Your integrity. We thank You for all the different ways that You emphasize to your people, to all people, that you want to be believed on the basis of your bare word alone. You deserve to be believed on the basis of your bare words alone and that you will demonstrate that and that as Isaiah 55 reminds us that no single word will ever come back to you void. Nothing that you have said you will do will be undone. We thank you for being that kind of God. And because of that, Lord, we can trust you implicitly with all of your promises to us in whatever situation or circumstance we find ourselves. So minister, Lord, this truth deeply and very practically to our souls. We pray in Jesus' name.